blast here. This is the hole that the Americans say was caused by the Iranian limpet mine that ripped through the outer and inner hull of this ship. You obey, you will be safe. If you obey, you, be, you will be safe. Alter your course to uh, 360 degrees immediately. Over. MV Stena Imperio, this is a British warship Foxtrot 236. So I reiterate that as you are conducting transit passage in a recognised international strait, under international law your passage must not be impaired, impeded, obstructed or hampered. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? On the 4th of July 2019, the Iranian tanker Grace One was detained by UK forces in Gibraltar on suspicion of EU sanction violations. There then followed an apparent tit-for-tat act of aggression on the 19th of July when a British flag tanker, the Stena Impero, was detained by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps whilst in international waters when transiting the Straits of Hormuz inbound to the Gulf. Track forward to August 2020 and we find Iranian forces once again boarding another vessel. This time a Liberian flag tanker, the MV Willa, once again on innocent passage through the Straits of Hormuz. So what should we make of these apparent acts of aggression against international ship owners by Iranian military forces? Are these events connected? And should ship owners be concerned with the apparent escalation of hostilities in the Persian Gulf? We will aim to answer these questions whilst also delving deeper into the issue of how US sanctions against Iran may have many unintended consequences for ship owners trading their vessels to the Gulf, both now and into the future. I'm your host and Shoreline CEO, Captain Thomas Brown, and you are listening to Shoreline's Maritime Risk Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Cormac McGarry, and Jonathan Wood from Control Risks about the ongoing escalation of maritime risk in the Gulf region. Hi, Tom. I'm Jonathan Wood, Control Risks Lead Analyst for North America, as well as the Deputy Global Research Director, focusing on transnational and geopolitical risk issues. And I'm Cormac McGarry, a Senior Analyst at Control Risks, where I'm part of a specialized and globally based uh, team looking at international, transnational, supranational issues and I specifically specialize in the maritime sector and maritime security and I guess that sets a, a good context for the rest of the discussion because my my specialized team over the past well just over a year now has been looking at a sequence of events involving Iran on one side and, and the US and her allies specifically her her Gulf Arab allies on the other side and these events really began in, in May of last year, specifically the 12th of May 2019, with the attack on four tankers in the Fujaira anchorage, followed by two more attacks on two tankers uh, exiting the Gulf of Oman almost a month, just over a month later. 
And these were the first of a sequence of incidents, uh, which included, as you mentioned, Tom, the British seizure of the Iranian tanker Grace One in Gibraltar, followed by the Iranian seizure of a red engine flagged tanker, the uh, Stena Imperial, and more broadly, a lot of other almost seizures and harassment of vessels around the Strait of Hormuz and broader Gulf region, as well as a lot more developments onshore, which you know we're not going to cover so much in this podcast. But more recently, my team were tracking the U.S. seizure of four Liberian flagged tankers carrying Iranian fuel to Venezuela, which represented the largest U.S. seizure of Iranian fuel in history. And that was followed pretty immediately by the Iranian seizure of a somewhat linked tanker in the Gulf region. Thank you for further setting the scene. This subject is of particular interest to Shoreline uh, and our clients. Obviously, the issue of sanctions and the issue of the maritime security risk and escalation within the region is also uh, pertains to many of our cruise ship uh, owners who, once they get their vessels back into trading patterns, um, the Gulf region is becoming a, a hotspot for, for the, the passenger trade. Hopefully, you, you can shine a light on the issues relating to maritime security within the Gulf and also explain to us uh, the ongoing tension between the US and Iran and how that could spark real problems for ship owners operating their vessels in this high-risk area of the world. Sure. So, I mean, the, f- the first thing to say is that, you know, these, these issues have already uh, manifested in, in maritime security risk and manifested specifically in those sequence of incidents that I, I just uh, very quickly overviewed. You know, to, to understand the risk to a specific vessel. So to our listeners, if you're a vessel owner, operator, crew member, or even an underwriter, uh, to understand the risk to a specific vessel, you know, in the first instance, we have to analyze the actual incidents themselves and what happened. And that will that kind of allows us to understand what is the level of risk to any vessel. And I think the, the first set of incidents that happened in May and June of 2019 are perhaps the easiest to analyze because they were so physical and kinetic in nature. So if we look at the initial attacks on the four tankers in Fujaira, you know, we assessed pretty quickly at control risks that these were committed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy. And we based that very much on the tactics that we saw employed. More importantly, perhaps we based that on the geopolitical assessments of the region itself, which We'll come back to you on a second. But looking at those attacks themselves, those four tankers, and then the, the next two tankers that were attacked while underway out of the Gulf of Oman, while they incurred quite significant damage on the vessels, if you look at the tactics that were used, they were very clearly intended to achieve a limited amount of destruction. And they were very calculated in nature, and the vessels were very targeted in nature as well. So if you look at those first four attacks, which we are pretty sure were committed using limpet mines attached to the hulls of the vessels, in the first case when they were anchored and in the second case when they're underway, significantly much more difficult exercise to achieve. You know, the ability to place limpet mines on tankers in anchorage and while underway and successfully have them explode as they did, that requires a high degree of capability and intent. It also requires access to the resources and training to do it and to not fail. And 
those are just some of the reasons why we were pretty quick to assess that, you know, that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps were behind this because it mimicked a lot of the tactics that they had, they had deployed in the region historically and also in the recent past. And what's really important about that is, you know, understanding the outcome of what happened and the capability of those threat actors kind of leads us to that conclusion that if they wanted to sink those tankers and achieve maximum destruction, they probably could have. And this is really important then to understand was the risk to your vessel. Because then we move on to targeting. Those vessels, we are sure, were very carefully selected and targeted for what they represented. And uh, moving a bit forward onto the seizure of the Sten Imperial, that was perhaps more obviously selected uh, as a direct response to the British seizure of the Grace One. Uh, and in fact, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps had given a specific and imminent warning that they were going to seize a British flag tanker at that time. So why are the threat actors carrying out attacks designed to achieve this limited outcome, not maximum destruction? The reason for that is because of a much more complex issue worth analyzing, which is the geopolitical context. And, you know, before we get into that, let's fast forward to the more recent incidents, which have kind of kicked off this discussion which is the U.S. seizure of four tankers, followed by the Iranian seizure of another tanker. What was that tanker that the Iranians seized? I should say they didn't necessarily seize it. They temporarily boarded the tanker. And our analysis shows that that tanker was somewhat related to the four tankers that the U.S. had seized. It had a common linkage in its flag, which is Liberian. And that's, you know, our, our listeners will know that a large portion of the fleet is Liberian flag, so it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But more importantly, the tankers shared a linkage in ownership. And this was yet another incident in that sequence of incidents over the past year or so, in which the seizure was very targeted, calculated. And, you know, to finish that up, what I mean is that the seizure was designed to be a response, but to be a limited response, a proportional response that would not solicit an even larger response on the side of the U.S. and the U.S. and the U.S.'s allies. Importantly, because we seek that while these incidents are tit for tat in nature, neither sides, neither side in this these tensions are seeking an es- an escalation to open conflict, and you know that understanding is really important when you look at your specific vessel. And we have to just take another step back then to understand why those tactics are being deployed, because that is a geopolitical question. And, you know, to to fully understand that geopolitical context, you really have to go far back in history of the history of Iran in the U.S. and Iran and its place in its neighborhood. Fortunately, as a maritime security analyst, I get to uh, rely on the resources of my colleagues who are country and regional experts around these issues. And. One of those experts is Jonathan Woods. So I think at this point, it'd be good to go over to you, John, maybe to set the scene of that context. Well, Mark, thanks very much. And thank you as well for that outlining that sequence of events, because I think it's directly relevant to the geopolitical context and specifically to the way that tensions between the U.S., Iran, and other countries have evolved since mid-2018, when the U.S. withdrew 
from the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, and through more recent developments, including these incidents, which, as, as you outlined, prompted a significant increase in tensions between the U.S., Iran, and U.S. Gulf allies. Uh, and what we are currently going through, even as we sit here and discuss a drama within the U.N. Security Council over the reimposition of uh, crippling international sanctions on Iran. So rewinding one step back, when the Trump administration came into office, it made very clear that it viewed the 2015 JCPOA or Iran nuclear deal as a threat to both U.S. and Middle Eastern security. And the main reason for that was it thought it did not address some of the other activities that Iran was involved with in the wider Middle East region, specifically support for proxies in places like Syria, potentially Yemen, and Afghanistan. And after going back and forth for the first 18 months, the administration withdrew from that deal in May 2018 and reimposed rather crushing U.S. sanctions, especially on Iran's oil exports, under a policy that it described as maximum pressure. Now, the objectives of this policy have always been officially to bring Iran back to the negotiating table with the U.S. and its allies for a stronger or more durable deal that put constraints on Iran's nuclear program. However, many in Tehran and the Iranian government and certainly many around the world suspect that the ulterior motive of the Trump administration's policy is no less than to change the government in Iran itself by imposing this maximum pressure sanctions campaign. And as I'll come to it in a minute, this isn't necessarily out of form for this administration. We also have maximum pressure sanctions campaigns against North Korea and more recently against Venezuela, both places where you know, the, the basic objective of U.S. strategy is a change in the domestic politics of those countries. So against that backdrop, from mid-2018, we've had a steady rise in tensions between the U.S. and Iran in the Gulf region over the U.S.'s economic sanctions on Iran and the pressure that those have put the Iranian government under. Uh, and those pressures really came to a head in the middle of last year, as you and, and many listening to this podcast will be familiar. Following those incidents in the Gulf, we had very serious consideration of U.S. military action again, directly against Iranian sites. Those were following the downing of a U.S. drone in June of last year. And, you know, that, that, that potential, that potential for this tension between the U.S. and Iran over sanctions to go hot, as it were, into an active regional conflict escalated even further over the next six months with attacks on the oil, oil assets in Saudi Arabia, which were ultimately attributed to Iran, as well as in, uh, at the very beginning of 2020 the killing of a senior Iranian military commander by the U.S. in Iraq and subsequent retaliation by Iran-backed militia against a U.S. military base. So we came into 2020 at a point at which tensions between the U.S. and Iran were very, very high and where Iran in particular was keen to demonstrate its capability to retaliate asymmetrically against U.S. sanctions by threatening these waterways and the Strait of Hormuz in particular, which has always been, if you like, Iran's sort of trump card and prob probably measure of last resort in some ways. And 
as these tensions have escalated, it, it wanted to make sure that it could demonstrate its ability to respond and retaliate against U.S. pressure. And that sort of brings us to today. As I mentioned, the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA and has subsequently embarked on a diplomatic strategy of trying to get its allies and other countries to support tighter sanctions on Iran, which were lifted by the UN Security Council in 2015. And that's really where we are at this particular moment. A arms embargo imposed by the UN on Iran is due to expire in October. The US sought unsuccessfully earlier in August to have that arms embargo extended and made very clear that if the UN Security Council declined to extend that embargo, then it would seek to have the UN restore its full array of sanctions, which would be theoretically binding on the international community against Iran. So we wouldn't just be talking about the US's unilateral sanctions on Iran's oil exports and its other measures, but we would be talking about sanctions that the international community, the Europeans, China, Russia, and Iran's other trade uh, and, and diplomatic partners globally would also be obliged to impose. And needless to say, there's not much inter- there's not so much support in the international community for doing that, both because the international community broadly rejects the U.S.'s position that it has any legal standing to reimpose these sanctions, but they also want to see a return to diplomacy and not just this kind of coercive diplomatic pressure that winds up creating these potential threats to both regional stability and the international economy when you think about attacks on on tankers and other uh, vessels moving through the strait. So this is a very interesting time and a a very important crunch time because potentially by mid to late September, when a timeframe for the reimposition of those UN sanctions expires, we'll be looking at a situation in which the, the U.S. has said it insists that the international community reimpose these sanctions, but where you know key players, and that includes Iran's um, current relationships with China and Russia, simply refuse to go along, and where there might well be a schism in the international community over what sanctions on Iran look like. And that's not entirely surprising because Iran's strategy, I would say, for most of the last eighteen months has been to try to ride out this maximum pressure campaign by the U.S. and get to the other critical event that is fast looming, and that is the November 2020 U.S. election. Because this maximum pressure sanction strategy and all of the tensions and security threats that go along with it are an artifact of the Trump administration's policy. But his rival, Democrat former Vice President Joe Biden, who was, of course, the vice president in President Barack Obama's administration that negotiated the Iran nuclear deal, has said that a democratic administration would return to diplomacy, would return to a negotiated solution to Iran's nuclear program, and, and even to rejoin the JCPOA itself, probably with some modifications. And I think, Cormac, that, that probably really explains why we've seen this very careful attempt to balance retaliation and not escalate so far as to provoke the U.S. into, say, some of the threatened scenarios that that Trump has expressly mentioned. For example, attacks on Iran's refining complex, on its oil export facilities, or on military targets inside Iran. Its goal is to get to the election in anticipation that there might be a change in administration that would result 
in a more favorable diplomatic landscape for Iran. But at the same time, it wants to go into that new administration with a significant amount of leverage to bargain with the U.S. and the international community over. And that leverage includes the progress it's made in its nuclear enrichment program, and it includes its ability to threaten shipping in the Gulf region. And that's a really important point because, you know, one of the big scenarios that has been talked about over the last 18 months is really that worst case scenario that Iran does actually try to shut down the Strait of Hormuz. And, you know, in the last week, just for example, following another localized issue actually between Iran and the United Arab Emirates in the Strait, one of the headlines I saw in the British tabloid press literally read World War Three panic. And, you know, that is quite simply a sensa- sensationalist headline. I mean, we're nowhere near that. Um, looking at that kind of worst case scenario of an Iranian attempt to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, you know, while that possibility does get muted, as you said, John, it's, it's kind of that, that Trump card that Iran has, we are nowhere near that scenario. And as a reminder, the last time Iran made any kind of attempt to threaten general shipping in the Strait of Hormuz and actually attempt to shut down exports, it was looking to shut down exports from in the context of the Iran-Iraq war. And when it tried that, it, it failed and suffered a devastating response, particularly from the US Navy, who went in and specifically protected Kuwaiti flag shipping. So that scenario, which gets muted quite a lot, we're, we're, we're nowhere near that. And, you know, we, what's much more important for listeners who own and operate ships is, is to really focus on the actual risk to your vessel as they're going in to the Gulf and, and, and actually more broadly around the world if trading with sanctioned entities. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we've always, I guess, at, at a basic level viewed that type of threat as very unlikely, not least because it would be Iran essentially cutting off its nose to spite its face. Its economy is highly dependent on those oil exports. And unlike some of its Gulf partners, it really lacks alternate export routes for those products and for crude. And so closing the strait would damage Iran as much or more than some, both perhaps the US, which has become, of course, much more energy independent in recent years, but, but even some of the other countries in the region. But that said, I mean, we, we have looked at this issue and and we and, and as you outlined, Cormac, we know a little bit about Iran's capabilities in this in this regard. And so even if there's a lack of intent to carry out that type of scenario, I think certainly one, thing, one reason why it keeps coming back around is, is precisely because of the demonstration of those relevant capabilities in that theater uh, that do underscore that type of leverage that Iran is trying to display as it continues to negotiate with the U.S. and with the international community over economic sanctions and in particular over its, over its nuclear program. And just to that point about targeting, I mean, it's, you know, the, it's, it's a complicated region and there's a lot going on, but not every dynamic in the region is related to U.S.-Iran tensions as much as, it, as much as some media outlets might like to make it seem so. The other big geopolitical dynamic that we've had in recent weeks was an announcement, for example, between the UAE and Israel that they would plan to gradually normalize their diplomatic 
uh, relationships. And Iran, Iranian officials and Iranian leaders immediately came out and described this as a sort of threat to Iran's interests in the region. And so that, that is also playing on, playing on in the background in terms of thinking about what types of vessels and from what countries might be at elevated risk. Well, that was fascinating. A lot to take in there, a lot of information, both on the, the international geopolitical backdrop to the region and also localized political issues between Iran and its neighbors in the region. Obviously, you, you have all that overlaid with the issues of sanctions, the need for Iran perhaps to trade with Venezuela, another, another sanctioned country by the U.S., so really, it seems to me that a lot of our ship owners' vessels that are trading to the to the Gulf region really are, you know, the pawn pawns very much in, in a, a bigger a bigger bigger game that's going on really between you know one one of the super well between all of the superpowers I guess because to a certain extent you know the other superpowers like China and Russia are, are involved in their own ways if if not a, a bit more sort of um, discreetly than the U.S. Perhaps all the focus is tends to be on the U.S. But of course there are you know, other dynamics at play with the, the other superpowers in the, in the region. So I guess what I'm taking from all of that, which you're saying is we may be heading into an area, into a period of time when actually we need to be more attuned to what's going on. There could be a greater degree of volatility depending on how the political landscape should pan out in the US as we, as we go towards the, the new um, election later this year. I mean, we may see some we have seen in the past some unusual decisions, perhaps by the U.S. president, which may be politically motivated. I don't know if there's an opportunity for a show of force here, if necessary, to try and garner more support for his election campaign, which may then have unintended consequences and a knock-on effect to shipping in the region. But I think what we can take a little bit of comfort from what Cormac was saying is that it's not a sort of generalized security risk to all shipping. You know, not all vessels are under the um, the threat of you know Iranian military action necessarily. It does seem to be very targeted and specific to you know issues um, of relevance in the region, whether they be sanctions related or otherwise. So that perhaps should give us some comfort. But you know, maybe if you could just uh, speak to the issue of you know the the next sort of time period as we the run up to the election, do you anticipate that ship owners should be take a great de greater degree or pay a greater degree of attention to volatility in this region? Do you anticipate any increased volatility? And then really, Cormac, just to say, you know, is there any vessel-specific um, security measures that ship owners should be employing really to safeguard the, the security and safety of their vessels and crew when trading to the Gulf? You can approach this on three levels. You know, if you, if you look at that kind of worst case scenario and, and, and the, the threat to general shipping. So as I said, it's not a case of every ship is at the same risk, but there's always this possibility for an unintended escalation and a spiral, uh, a spiral of escalation. And then that's, that's where we can start worrying about a general threat to shipping. But what's, what's more important in the immediate context for owners and operators is, is really to conduct that risk assessment on an individual vessel. So, and, and base that on the parameters of those geopolitical uh, contexts and triggers that me and John have been speaking about. So just for example, if, you, if you're sending a, you know, a, a Marshall Islands flagged tug or a dredger through the Strait of Hormuz, it's not going to be carrying any real degree of risk of being attacked or boarded or seized by, 
by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. If that vessel is, let's say, accompanying a Saudi Arabian flagged tanker bringing uh, oil products out of the Gulf, then that's going to carry a, a higher degree of risk because of its association with that geopolitical context. And you can apply that you know, to every vessel depending on the cargo it's carrying, the flag it bears, the nature of its operations, who it's trading with, to and from. And that will help you understand the, the, the risk to a specific vessel. And then when we talk about the mitigation of that risk, you know, I won't go into detail here, but there have been guidelines issued by the industry, specifically oil companies, International Marine Forum issued guidelines last year on how to protect against some of these risks in, in the Gulf region. It's quite a detailed uh, set of guidelines, you know, included probably most importantly is that it is not advised to switch off AIS, which is sometimes an initial reaction that people will have. That will more than likely result actually in a higher degree of risk. And bearing in mind that AIS was primarily designed to prevent collision. So by switching off AIS in the Strait of Hormuz, you, you're possibly increasing a safety risk to try and mitigate a security risk. And there are certain cases where switching off AIS may be justified, particularly including when there's a naval escort, for example, for, for a particular ship that carries a particular risk. There's other guidelines there, which you know are going to take a long time to go through, but they include more detailed things, such as if there's an impending and imminent threat to increase watches and increase outboard lighting, for example. And there's even... Uh, methods you can use by applying your uh, propellers and rotors in such a way to deter diving operations. But jumping back out of that for a second is also going on that sanctions issue because this, you know, this is this is a kind of a, a separate set of risks. You know, if, if your ship is engaging in potentially the violation of any kind of sanctions regime, that does not necessarily apply to your vessel when it's in the Gulf region. So, for example, if you're trading, if you've decided to pick up Iranian fuel and you're bringing it to Venezuela, the risk does not necessarily apply to your ship when it's in those waters. That's going to carry a risk throughout the transit, and it's going to it's going to carry a risk that is beyond that ship itself because that's going to be a business integrity risk. And you know the, those sanctions are an issue as well, along with the security risk. Kind of going back to your question, Tom. In the immediate future, this like period that we're jumping into is probably the biggest event to watch out for in the coming months is going to be that U.S. presidential election. That's right, Cormac. And maybe I can just address how volatile we think the situation might be in the run-up to the election. We're about just under 70 days away. As I mentioned, we have two sort of key dates coming up over the next two months that will you know, the potential trigger points for increased tensions between the U.S. and Iran. The first of these is what the U.S. sees as a sort of 20 September deadline for the U.N. to reimpose its sanctions on Iran under the so-called snapback provisions of the JCPOA. It's still unclear exactly what's going to happen within the Security Council, but it seems unlikely that either the U.S., which wants to snap back sanctions, and the rest of the Security Council, which opposes the validity of that action, are going to, to budge dramatically. So the first sort of break point might be in mid to late September, as the U.S. seeks to increase pressure 
not just on Iran, but on some other countries that it wants to force to reimpose those sanctions. And the second one will come about a month later when the UN arms embargo on Iran is due to expire on the 18th of October. And, you know, this is another sort of what the U.S. has has essentially described as a red line for its Iran policy, which is to prevent the transfer of certain weapon systems to Iran once that arms embargo is lifted. And again, it's, it's not to say that those transfers will occur immediately, but we can expect that the U.S. might take more aggressive action to deter what it sees as potential arms transfers or, or other violations of that U.N. sanctions regime in the coming months. And, and then I think the third factor, and that's one that, Tom, you, you mentioned, which is exactly right, you know, heading into 2020, President Trump wanted to campaign on a strong U.S. economy and on, you know, certain foreign policy issues like the, the revisions to the North American Free Trade Agreement. The COVID-19 pandemic, which, where, which the U.S. is still one of the worst performing countries globally, and its ensuing recession has made it much more difficult to campaign on those domestic issues. And, and as a result, we have seen the administration turn to more aggressive foreign policy maneuvers, both towards Iran with this gambit at the UN Security Council, but also towards countries like China, where it has over the recent months imposed a series of unprecedented sanctions and export controls, elevating tensions there as well, including in the South China Sea region, for example. So I think it's likely, and we we think that it's likely that in the months between now and the US election in November, we're going to have a U.S. administration that is looking for high-profile ways to demonstrate its commitment, its resolve, and its ability to confront what it sees as key U.S. adversaries, and that certainly includes Iran. And it's one reason why it, w- it will probably be perhaps increasingly difficult for Iran, for its own domestic political reasons, to absorb and resist these U.S. measures and try to hold out to the election as the U.S. increases that pressure. And while we might continue to see this kind of tit-for-tat dynamic where Iran comes under pressure domestically to respond to these steps taken by the U.S. or other countries externally. Well, gentlemen, that's been fascinating speaking with you this morning. Jonathan, from the, the sort of political overview of the of the region, both geopolitically uh, and, and more locally, and, and obviously the US, the U.S. and the U.N. sanctions overlaid with the GC, G, JCPO, POA, and, uh, and Cormac, of course, you know, your insight into these particular tactics employed by the Iranian military forces against these commercial assets is fascinating to, to hear and, and get a better understanding of. And hopefully that translates to, to useful information to the listeners to this podcast and, and indeed to Shoreline's clients who, who hopefully will be um, better informed about the, uh, the maritime security risk in the region and how that is currently and how it may actually escalate going forward to the end of this year. It's very reassuring to know that, you know, Shoreline do have the benefit of the relationship with, with control risks, supporting our uh, crisis response product. And, you know, I'm sure that many of our insureds can sleep at night knowing that they've got a, the full backing and support of, of the control, control risk team in that regard. 
So unless there's anything further to add, I think we should bring this, the first of our uh, Maritime Risk podcast, to a close. And just once again, we'd like to thank you for your time this morning and your helpful insight and information into this highly volatile area of the world. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much. Cheers. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.